Welcome to another episode of The Sebastian Show. This week, we're talking to Lewis Raymond Taylor. It's an incredible story. I was super excited to get him on from his story of abuse and drug addiction to becoming a life coach with a $25 million business. It's an incredible story of redemption and should encourage anyone that no matter where you're at, you can turn things around and have an impact in your world. Check it out. All good things, yes. All right, well, let's get into it. Uh, so, Lewis Raymond Taylor, welcome. I'm excited to uh, get a chance to to speak with you today and and unpack your story. Like I, I said before, we started recording. Um, you know, just getting to do a little bit of research on you and hear where you've come from. It's pretty incredible, and hopefully, uh, we can unpack that in a way that'll be really beneficial to our audience. So, tell us a little bit about you. Give us kind of frame it up for us. What? Where are you from? What's your story? Just give me the brief overview. Woo. It's very hard to do it in a brief fashion, but I'm from London originally, uh, just outside of London anyway. Um, grew up with a quite um, a negative um, environment. My parents didn't really know how to sort of emotionally nurture me. So um, mm. I thought it was normal, but it wasn't. It was having an effect on me. Um, my dad was very abusive. He'd put me down a lot, call me a buffoon and tell me I'd never amount to anything. He would hit me. It wouldn't be often. It's not like you beat me every day with a belt, but it would happen. And when it happened, it had an, uh, had an effect on me again. He was also an alcoholic. Um, and that was kind of, I guess, the catalyst. You know, I can't blame it all on that, but I think that's that obviously played a big part of my, um, my genetic, not genetic, but my makeup as a person. Um, uh, obviously you learn beliefs from a very young age of how the world works and how you sit in it and who you are and what your identity is. And, and mine was, I was bad. And it started from, from home and it spiraled into school and then spiraled into police. And all these messages just told me I was bad. I mean, I did a fraudulent slip there when I said genetic there as well, because later on in life at the age of 18, when I was facing a number of prison sentences um, for violent crimes, I was diagnosed with an antisocial personality, uh, personality disorder, which is the clinical term they give to a psychopath, um, which is an interesting label to be given when you've been given a lot of labels already. And I kind of felt like I'd been written off because every single person I come into contact with, whether or not they're family or school or police or psychiatrists or probation or judges, it was bad, 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 bad. So I drew the conclusion that I was bad. And I, I believed it wholeheartedly. I just, I, I didn't understand change. I didn't think you could change. I thought maybe you could change things about what you did and what you wore and what you said. I didn't think you could change the person you were. So, I mean, to cut a very long story short, I got into drink and drugs. Uh, and I'm not just talking about the usual story that people tell when they get into drink and drugs. I'm talking three or four days without eating or sleeping. I did this for seven years straight. I was a full-on drug addict and... Uh, I was very violent as well, and I was a drug dealer. Um, and I'd get into lots of fights. I had my teeth knocked out, slashed in the back with a with a knife, jaw broken, uh, mm. epileptic seizures as a result of all my uh, drug and alcohol abuse. In and out of prison, um, and also lots of trauma throughout this. Like I was sexually abused when I was eleven. Um, I walked in and found my dad eventually dead through the alcohol. You said you mentioned it, pancreatic cancer, yes. He 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 had passed away from pancreatic cancer that was caused predominantly from alcoholism. 
Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I can't say for sure it was from the drink, but you know, drank a lot and yeah, it's linked. Um, and then I tried to commit suicide once by slashing my neck with a knife, um, in a very bizarre sort of psychotic kind of breakdown where I was sectioned under the Mental Health Act. Um, and that, amongst a few other things that I probably can't imagine, you can get a, a good enough picture of the fact that my life was complete and utter chaos. And I was, and I'd written myself off and so did everybody else. Even my mum said to me, "You're not going to make old bones, Lewis. We know that." Which means, you know, we know you're going to die young. And even I thought that as well. I was, I was on a suicide mission. You know, uh, I would, I would jump into groups of lads to fight, wanting to lose sometimes, or swing in from balconies, drunk and out of my mind, sort of hoping I'd slip off. Um, it's a kind of young, reckless behaviour you could put it down to, but it, it was deeper than that. You know, there was trauma. So that that's a good jumping off point. I think that paints the picture. Um, pretty pretty rough childhood. Um, let me let me fill in some of the pieces here a little bit. And ask the question. Mom and dad were together, mm-hmm. right? Uh, what was their relationship like? Well, my dad was my mom and dad could potentially both be psychopaths as well. If I am a psychopath, I mean, you know, I've been labeled one. Yes, you know, clinically I am one, whether or not I, I would adopt that title. Um, I don't know if I would want to. I'm not sure. I'm still on the fence about it. Um, but I do meet criteria. And I've been diagnosed, and I've had another assessment recently, and I meet, and to, to be a full-blown psychopath, you have to get 30 out of 40 on a checklist, and I, and I actually got 30, so I was right on the edge. Um, even now, even once I change my life. So it's a certain way of thinking more so than, you know, there's the symptomatic events that usually people, you know, would associate to, to psychopathy and the, the stigmatizing side of things. Anyway, my mum, I used to nickname the stone because she would never show any emotion. Mm. And my dad was out and out fucking ruthless with me. So they were either just so emotionally unintelligent to the point where they just didn't understand how to express that um, or they did have some genetic component as well. But I just wasn't brought up in a loving, I love you, cuddly environment. We didn't sit in front of the TV and watch t- TV. We didn't have dinner together. We, we didn't talk. We didn't, you know, share stories. We had none of that. So I think... Did you get any any sense of their childhood? Was their childhood similar to your childhood? Or did you get yeah. to know your grandparents at all? A bit. So I know that my mum and my mum's uh, mum and dad were military background, um, strict, don't speak until you're spoken to kind of thing. No love, I love you and cuddle, just because very, very strict. And then I knew, I know that my dad hated his dad because he told me, and um, (laughs) his mum died when he was 16. So he has some trauma there. And I remember sitting to him once, I said, dad, what do you you think about family? Because our family's tiny, by the way, it's literally under 10 members in total. Um, I said, "What what do you think about family? And uh, he said, "There's just people." Oh, it's such a bizarre answer for for a for a father to give a son. Yeah, it just shows you know yeah. something else going on there. So yeah, they 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 got on. They were married, but they weren't happy. They stayed in separate rooms. They didn't do anything yep. together. It's like one of those marriages that were marriage for the sake of it. You know. Did did they have? Uh, did you have any siblings? Do you have any other kid? Did they have any other kids? Yeah, I had an older sister that I didn't see uh, because my dad actually left her when she was younger as, as a baby. Um, she popped out and would work at when I was sort of 20 or something. And I had a younger brother who was five years younger than me. 
very different for me. I got him involved in the same lifestyle, selling drugs for me and things like that. But um, he 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 wasn't like me, so he snapped out of that quite quickly and just become a regular guy, I guess. That's fascinating. So ultimately, older sister, but no no connection or relationship to, and then younger brother, who at least for a bit kind of followed in your footsteps, and then for reasons that perhaps don't seem clear, and you correct me if I'm wrong, he kind of snapped out of it, and you would describe him as just kind of a regular dude. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't have, he's not like me, because I have these traits that are negative, but also can be channeled into a positive, and he doesn't yep. have, he doesn't have those. So yeah, he is a regular dude, which is good, which means he didn't get himself into any trouble. But he also doesn't have the blessing of the other side of the coin. Um, yeah. Of, yeah, the advantages that come with some of the um, the traits that I have. Yeah. Fascinating. I always I love to understand people's story. And I think one of the things that stood out to me about you, and I was so excited to have you on, is it's very easy to fall into the trap of, well, you don't know what I've been through or my suffering is unique. And that's something that I think part of the human experience, the human experience to me is a very subjective one by design. Everyone is having their own experience, but it is a blanket human experience. And one of the illusions that we surrender along the way is this idea of separateness or and or specialness that our suffering is special and that suffering somehow makes it viable for us to explain away the lack we, of, of what we want in our life, right? And, and your story is like incredibly powerful because listening to you, there's probably a lot of people that had a much better starting hand that have done less with their life with the intention to do more, right? For me, I don't really judge where somebody's at. It's, it's, are they living up to what they want? But they have the intention of doing more and they're giving excuses like, you know, that the reason why they're not there is something outside of themselves. And as I'm listening to your story, I'm like, fuck, that's, that's, a, that's a tough place to start. So not a great family environment, very, not very close to your family. Dad doesn't even recognize family as really a thing, just people. Um, certainly some of the, the clinical descriptions you're using fit just based on my own background in psychology. Um, he passes away. Mom, is mom still around? Do you have a relationship with her? Um, we do. It's a surface level kind of checking in every few months, bit of a chat. But... Does she know who you are now? Does she, does she recognize that you aren't that, that child that, she thought wasn't going to make it very far in life and probably die young, or does she still have you in that frame? Yeah, um, she, she, it's undeniable now, really, um, from from what I've achieved. Um, how she actually views me, I'm not sure, but yeah, she she must see me very differently. So, so you kind of hit rock bottom, and you were describing that in and out of prison, your third run through. What triggered the change? Right, you you said you went on this seven year run, uh, in, in your own words, of you know heavily involved with with drugs, uh, alcohol, in and out of prison, uh, got into a lot of violent fights, tried committing suicide unsuccessfully. What what was the trigger? What what hit? What made you hit rock bottom and then decide I'm going to be something different? I'm going to do something different with my life. Hmm. So I uh, the last fight I ever the last punch I ever swung um was now probably eight or nine years ago and i was at a taxi queue um and i jumped to the front of the taxi queue because i was so drunk i didn't even realize there was a queue 
And when I say taxi, I mean cab. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm tracking. I'm tracking. <laughs> and um, jumped in a cab. And I went to the through, opened the door. And uh, some guy started shouting at me and, you know, swearing at me. And I genuinely, to this day, do not remember what he looked like. Because all I can see in my mind is my dad's face. Mm. And that's not an excuse uh, for what I did. But it's just a good example of how powerful previous experiences can be and, and how triggering works, you know. And he triggered me and he made me feel small and belittled. And that was, you know, something that I had uh, been trying to cover up for many years. I mean, something in between this is I've, I, you know, my dad used to hit me. I, I didn't get bullied at school, but I got jumped a few times. I always felt quite powerless. Um, and I and I had a fight when I was a bit, you know, about 18 years old. And it and I won. And it gave me this power that I'd never had before. And I loved it, you know, and I became in a way addicted to the violence because it gave me something that I'd never had before. You know, if you don't have love, significance, and then you find it in something, you know, I'm just making these very unconscious decisions to satisfy some kind of need. Mm-hmm. And I found it through violence in the weirdest way. So anyway. I went through fighting all the time, crazy amounts of fights, sometimes three, three fights in the night. I would, I would have my clothes ripped off in a fight. I'd go out to the nightclub. I would pay a homeless guy for his T-shirt. I'd put it on. I'd get in the back of the queue and I'd go back in again and fight again. It's that obsessive. Um, and anyway, so this last fight I ever had, um, this guy shouted at me and I punched him. He fell on the ground. And I looked over him and I saw this slow, dark trickle of blood come out of his head. And I thought I killed him. And he wasn't far off. He was he, he went into a coma and he had a brain hemorrhage. And um, I looked up and there was a camera right on me. And uh, I knew that I was going to go to prison again, third time. Um, I was going to go to prison for anything I did at that point because I was a convicted criminal. I had 19 offences at that point. Um, all the way from young offenders all the way to an adult at 25 years old. So uh, I put my hands up and I just waited for the police to arrive thinking he was dead. Put my coat over him thinking he was dead. Jesus. Uh, turns out he wasn't dead. Uh, thank God. And um, believe it or not, though, that wasn't the wake-up call. Um, due to this antisocial personality disorder that I've been either labelled with or have or this tra- traumatic response of me uh, shutting my emotions down or a lack of emotional stimulation from a young age to the point where I've just never understood what emotions are. I don't understand, didn't and don't really understand empathy and sympathy fully. Um, how can you if it's, if it's not something you've ever been taught or shown or, uh, or experienced, you know, there's, there's some kind of combination there. So, so I, I at that time, I would have loved to have said, I nearly killed this guy, and that was the turning point. But it wasn't. You know, it was kind of like I've nearly ruined my life because I'm going to go to jail for life. <laughs> but even that wasn't really it. In the warped way, and, and, and I know this is crazy to say this, but in a really warped way, I thrived off the, notor- um, the notorious nature of the crimes that I did. I liked what people said about it when I did those things because it gave me something. I didn't have anything else. Uh, so I actually rang my friends. Uh, I can't remember what friend it was now. If it was my mum, I can never remember. I said, different podcasts, I've said mum, and then I said my friend. I can never remember who I spoke to, but I spoke to someone on the phone in prison, and I said, what are people saying about me on social media? And they said, you're on the front page of the paper. 
violent and boorish. Uh, boorish, I don't even know what it meant at the time, but they were referring to me as a pig, so that was brilliant. Um, but that didn't care me. That didn't, that didn't bother me. Didn't care about that at all. I've been in the paper a few times. But then they said, but your friend, best friend at the time, has posted a picture of you outside the courtroom uh, and another picture of you outside the exact same courtroom, but seven years earlier, looking mm-hmm. identical with a caption above it, nothing changes. And for some reason, that was the one, it's like breakthroughs have come out of nowhere sometimes. And they're the most insignificant things. I mean, that is fairly significant, but they're, they're not always these big moments that you expect. But for me, that was it. I, I just thought, first of all, I thought, cheeky a bit fucking rude you know you're just as bad as me telling me i'm not changed you've not changed then i thought but he is right nothing has changed i am outside the same courtroom in the same suit (laughs) you know doing the same things over and over again and expecting different results as i'm sure you've heard the quote and i I realized at that moment that i needed to change but the bizarre thing is 25 years of my life i never once thought that I could change me to that at the beginning I didn't think you could change you I I thought you were you you know you are a person you know some are bad some are good some are black some are white some are whatever you know I didn't know that there was this ability to change but in that moment for some reason I got it and I went back to my my prison cell and as cliche as it sounds I looked in the mirror and I looked at myself for the first time in my life I looked at myself clear in the photo well, it wasn't clear because it was a scratched-up piece of metal in prison <laughs> as a mirror. But, but although it was the worst reflection I've ever seen, it was the clearest I've ever seen myself. And I just realised in that moment that if I wanted my life to change, I had to change myself. So obvious <laughs> to everybody else listening in. Like, well, of course it is. But for mm-hmm. me, I'd never... And I didn't have any parental enforcement, you know, to say, oh, you know, how about having a little change, you know? They, they tried to punish me a few times before, but they, they didn't educate me on anything uh, in, in that respect. So I had the realisation that I could change myself. And luckily, I'm, I'm obsessive and compulsive, and I've been addicted to everything, from drink to drugs, to gambling, to fighting, to, you know. So I somehow latched onto this idea that I was going to change myself, and I became addicted to changing myself. And I started in prison, and I went... I, you know, I started to get into a routine. I went into the Rehabilitation of Addictive Prisoners Trust program, which is like a, a rehab program in prison. Um, I went to see a psychiatrist. I did maths and English in the maths and English department. And I just started to notice changes. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm actually, I'm changing. And it created a bit of belief in myself that I could, if I could make these small changes and it's working, then I can continue to change. And um, there's, there's actually a lot more to that transformative journey, but I'm sure you've got questions as well, so I'll let you. Yeah, so, so, so to, to kind of frame this up, um, how we see ourselves is our world, right? It's our identity, our story about self informs our behavior and how we're going to show up. And you're describing your behavior um, in a way, and, and you said this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but... The desire to feel significant, which is something you had never felt before, which is key here. That's, that's one of the six human needs, psychological needs, drove you to make decisions to fight and to, to have the notorious personality, right? Because it gave you something you never felt, which was significant. Even if it was negatively significant, it was still significant. And so your ability to even recognize that, right? This is important, is, is incredible. And then 
you're sitting in a jail cell and your friend, sounds like your best friend at the time, posts this picture of you, and it's, it's really two pictures, seven years apart, wearing the same suit, says nothing changes, and this, this triggers it. This moment goes, wait, 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 nothing's changed. And you kind of made a point of saying, well, you haven't changed either, and then you kind of go back to, but, but he's right, I haven't changed. And, and you, you, you've said twice now, it never occurred to you to think that you could change, at least up until this point, you just thought you are who you are, that we are who we are. And, and it doesn't sound like anybody actually told you you could change. You just decided in a moment, I'm going to change. Looking in a very poor reflection of yourself in a jail cell mirror, which is really just a shiny piece of metal, and you decided. And so you started taking incremental steps to improve yourself. And, and, and you started to build a little momentum in your life and started to change things a little bit of time. Did you have an idea at that point of what you wanted to do or how you wanted to change? Did you take an inventory of your, your personality, your skills, your character, and what you wanted to change? Was there any of that? Or what was driving, what were you moving towards? Or were you mostly just moving away from something? It was a bit of both. I mean, my number one problem, well, I wouldn't say the number one. Number one problem was myself. My number one um trigger with alcohol and drugs if i if i was drinking when i was sober even though i had my my demons as it were um i could control myself just about the moment i put drink or drugs in me i'm a completely different person i'm i am powerless and i wake up in the morning i don't know what i've done and it could be anything and i'm i was this close to having actually killed somebody and someone telling me you killed someone last night now uh, they'd be my life would have been over so of theirs so i knew that that needed to go that needed to go. So I started reading um, the blue book, Alcoholics Anonymous AA. That was mm. the first book I read. And I read it and I was like, oh my God, this is about me. This is everything in here is exactly how I feel. you know. And it was the first bit of identification and hope that I got. Oh my God, there's other people out there like me. It wasn't just the fact that I was an addict. There's way more layers, layers of complexity. But it was the first time I was able to see, okay, well, I'm not alone in this. And there are other people that have been in these situations and there are ways out. So I, I grasped it and I read that book and I started uh, doing this rehabilitation program. It was so basic. It was crazy. We'd sit in a room, armed crossed, full of convicted criminals. They'd ask us how we felt. And we'd all just say, I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm hungry. I'm all right. And then they'd hand us a piece of paper and we would start to actually look at it and say, Actually, I'm a bit frustrated to them. <laughs> and that's honestly how it started, my personal development journey. It's a crazy thing. And uh, I did this six-week program. I also went into maths and English, and, and I signed up for this maths and English program um, because I wanted to learn, but I was so scared because my dad called me a buffoon, you know, and I was convinced I was a buffoon, and I thought everyone was going to find out at any moment. So I signed up for this maths and English class, sat down. First thing I did was get the piece of paper and screw it up and throw it. Can, can you just, the insanity of that, I signed up for it. Mm. I screwed a piece of paper up like, like a 10-year-old when I'm a 25-year-old man. Like that, that's how insane I was. Um, and a little, I always call a little old lady, she doesn't like me saying that, she's not that old, but she, she's just quite old. Little old lady sit down next to me, she was a prison shooter. She just said, Lewis, what's up? What's the matter with you? And no one had ever, I don't think anyone ever asked that to me before. And I blurred, I just don't understand. What was so fascinating about that is I'd never, I didn't even look at the board once. So I didn't know I didn't understand. I assumed that. 
And she supported me to do these basic maths in English. This was a level of like a 10 year old. Yeah, this is a basic like addition or <laughs> subtraction or something, right? Because mm -hmm. I left school with no GCSEs, I got expelled. Uh, GCSEs in England are, you know, our qualifications yep. well from school. I left school with nothing. And even when I was in the school, I did nothing. So I had no education. And um, she supported me. And um, I said, do you, do you ever think I could go to university? Which is college. And she looked at me with the most certainty and conviction I've ever seen in my life when she said, of course you can. And it was the first bit of belief I think I've ever had from anyone in my life. And I felt it. I felt that belief and I thought, wow, I could go to university. And that became my goal. And then I said, give me a challenge. And uh, she said, go memorize pi. So random. But I went back to my cell and I memorized pi to 100 decimal places. 100 decimals is going to ask you how far out. Wow. Yeah. And then I came back and I did it in front of on the right board in front. And then she got all the other prison tutors in and they was watching it. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> give me another one. She went, memorize it to 500. Next day I came back and I memorized it to 500. It took me 20 minutes to read it off. And, um, and then I was like, holy shit, I'm not stupid. <laughs> it took me 25 years to realize that all I needed to do was drop the belief that I wasn't stupid to realize that I, that was clever. Um, and, and then that just set me off on this chain of this cycle of, oh, what else can I do? What else can I achieve? And I, I set myself that goal to go to, go to university. I left, I left prison. I did, I did a six-month rehab program first, fully intensive rehabilitation. They broke me down. They built me back up. Well, I could talk to you 10 hours about that on its own. That was worse than prison, that was. You know, I thought, <laughs> they, were, I thought they were going to teach me how to not drink and not take drugs, but no, no, no. They, they wanted to dig into every trauma I'd ever had and make me cry constantly until eventually I was just nothing left so that they yeah. could go, right, okay, now he's at a blank slate. <laughs> yep. Let's see how we can build this man into a you know functional member of society. And I walked out of that place six months later with my head just clear. Um, and I went to university. Three months in, I dropped dropped out because I, I realized it was way simpler than I thought. And started a business. And uh, by the time my um, my peers had graduated, I'd already become a multimillionaire. So <laughs> I did some good things in, in that time. So so for six months, you go through this intense program that you would describe as worse than prison, um, which which kind of sounds like military boot camp. And that I would say, I would say well, see, it's emotionally challenging to the point yeah. where I was suicidal at times because it's just you're digging into your things that you you don't want to talk about ever right 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 it's shame it's apt that you're saying this shame lives in the shadows right and you didn't use that word but i want to come back to it because it likely was there shame lives in the shadows in order to address these areas of our life we have to bring them to surface shame is the lowest level of consciousness before death right if you hang out in shame long enough then the only path is down, right? It's, it's very suicidal. It feels very suicidal. And so it sounds like they're bringing these things or assisting you in bringing these things to the surface so they can be confronted with, recognized, and dealt with, and then rewrite these programs, or essentially I would describe as rewriting your identity or your story of self in a way that's going to serve you going first. And this was your kind of preparatory process before going into college that really kind of tuned you up for the, for the world. And then you, you, and you go to college for three months, and then you realize, ah, oh, this is bloody simple, and I'm not going to waste the next four years of my life going through this program. And then you started your own business. There was something. There was a bit, a few more steps in there, but just quickly to, to touch on the, the what you just mentioned there. 
It's absolutely what they do. They try and bring into your awareness what you've been doing because the denial is so strong. But yeah. even when I was in rehab, I didn't think I should be there. I was thinking, what the fuck am I doing here? Like I'd always look for something to, to look at somebody and think they're worse than me. You know, I've never done heroin, you know, so that guy should be in it, not me. <laughs> and uh, I was in this um, uh, counseling um, group, co- uh, group counseling session. And um, I actually said, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to brainwash me. You just want me to be like you. Boring, you're average. I was so arrogant. It was horrible sitting there in my tracksuit <laughs> thinking that I was, uh, you know, this big shock to come out of prison. I don't know how I thought that I was something special, but I did. It was my defense mechanism, I guess, of low self-worth, <laughs> you know, from reflection, exactly what it was. But anyway, I said, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to brainwash me. You want me to be like you. I'm not listening to your bullshit. And um, <laughs> said lewis your best thinking your absolute best thinking has put you into prison and now into rehab <laughs> maybe <laughs> i thought god and she shut me up because i thought you're right again it's like my friend in the, you know you are right my thinking doesn't work my, my thinking is broken and if i keep on thinking the way i think i'm gonna keep and put myself back in prison yes so i need to try someone else's thinking so i tried that stuff I tried their morning affirmations. I tried their journaling. I opened up in therapy. I spoke about my traumas and told my life story. And it, yeah, it bloody worked. <laughs> <laughs> so little by little, you begin to change the way. Yeah. And, and just to, by the way, in terms of it being traumatic, one guy is quite deep, but one guy actually hung himself off the, uh, off the staircase from his shoelaces. Because that's how intense it is. You know, that's, you know, they bring you out of denial so much. But I guess some people, it's too much. Too, too much. Like you said, it's, um, I think you said something like despair. Was it despair? Shame. Shame is literally, shame is literally the lowest level of consciousness before death. So you see this when people drop into suicidal tendencies, the levels of consciousness they're dropping. And the last one is always shame. And shame lives in the shadows. It's shame makes us feel like we are, we're, we're trying to hide or conceal who we are. And it's, it's all of its power is in the shadows. The way you deal with shame is by bringing it to the surface, talking about it. But that can be an incredibly, incredibly heart-wrenching process for some people. I mean, I was tw- luckily 25 years old. I had some shame and, and, and a lot of bad things, but I had a lot, of, you know, a lot to live for. You know, this particular guy was 60 years old, uh, didn't have any family, and he must have just felt like there was no... So rest in peace, Dave. Um, but I am. Um, I I left the rehab. My head was clear. I started going to Alcoholics Anonymous and narcotic, uh, Narcotics Anonymous meetings every single day. Sometimes three in a day. Sometimes even five in a day. Become obsessed with it. But that was my that was my community. That was my support system. And um, learned so much in those rooms because every whether or not it's drink or drugs, they're trying to fix. And you know they're using. Uh, an external substance to fix an internal void these these people are broken and they just so happen to drink or take drugs it's, it's completely irrelevant and yeah. they need need love and they, they they want to talk about their triggers and traumas and and i get to see their relapses and their denials and their breakthroughs and i get to connect and i get to experience all these human emotions that i've never experienced in my life and i get to hug men as they walk, you know as they walk through the door um of, of an AA meeting every single man hugs one another and uh, it's the first you know hug that i'm having you know it's crazy so I, I i was blessed to have that and i believe that gave me 
that combined with the rehab, combined with my own transformation, I believe gave me the best like world's life coaching training in the world because it was it was from an experiential point of view. It wasn't all the tools and techniques and models that have been taught since the 80s. It was I've had all these traumas and I've managed to get out of them and fix yes. them and twist them to the point where they're I've overcome them. And I've heard everyone else's as well. And I know yes. how they overcame theirs. And I went out and I started helping people for free. So I went out meeting people in coffee shops completely free and just said, I help you because I'd learned all these things and I was on benefits, which was welfare at the time and I had nothing to do. So I just started helping people and I started changing their lives. And I thought, oh, I can make some money out of this. <laughs> so so, so I want to I want to jump into that. I want to spend the, the the rest of our time there. And it's, it's, it's so beautiful to see where you've come from. But I do have a couple of questions. When, did you... Did you respect and or love your father? Did you look to him as a model of the world? Because you've referenced him to this day, right? In our conversation, you've referenced him a ton of times. Like, it meant something to you that he thought you were a buffoon. And I, I met, you saw that was in your bio, and you've referenced that a few times. So it, was it as simple as I saw him as the model of male, right? Which is very normal, right? Was he the model of the world for how you're supposed to show up or what about how he showed up informed you in a way that made you think he was right? This is a complex question. I wouldn't say I modeled him in any way. I just, um, I, I attribute quite a lot of my trauma to him. Um, I see it, you know, cognitively now understanding the way that, you know, the brain works. I know that he did, he said things to me and did things to me that he shouldn't have done. And um, I know it had a massive impact on me. And if he hadn't done it, I wouldn't have gone through half the stuff I had. Um, but I did love him. It's even more difficult, you know, when someone that you love does those things to you. It's a very complex, especially when they pass away. And he, he never, he's never learned the man I've become. You know, he died when I was 21 years old, when I was in and out of prison. Uh, we've never sat down and had the conversation and just said, why, Dad? You know, why did you say those things? Why did you have to be like that? What, what was going on? Because he was hurting. His mum died. Um, he probably had issues. He was an alcoholic. I would have loved to have helped him. He needed help. Yeah. If he had help, then I wouldn't have needed help. You know, and it's quite a weird sort of parallel universe to be thinking that I'm now the man that could have helped my dad, that could have helped me. You know, but there's a lot of unanswered questions, and and it, and it is the root cause of a lot of where my problems started. So that's why it's significant in my story. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's hard not to answer. It is. I, 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 thank you for for uh, giving it a go. Where do you avoid alcohol and drugs now? Is that something that you totally avoid, or is it something that you're like, nah, I could get, take it or leave it. It's not really a big part of my life, but I don't really have an opinion one way or about it. What's your thoughts on alcohol and narcotics? The reason I say that is because I, as a frame, one of the principles I teach in in my coaching practice is, as a whole, I look at addiction, really to anything could be food, could be sex, could be video games, could be drugs, could be alcohol. But addiction in general is generally an attempt at a solution. It's a way that the person is trying to deal with their life. It's a, it's a, a way that they're trying to cope. It's a coping mechanism to deal with their life. So how do you look at those things now? Yeah, I, I just got to be completely honest. I've managed to master a lot of areas of my life and a lot of areas of my mind, but I am nowhere near fixed. And, and, and addiction is such a cunning and baffling and a thing that you know some people even believe it's a disease or it's something that's uh, genetic 
I I truly believe that I am an addict. I am obsessive compulsive, and you know I I do, and especially being on this antisocial spectrum, I don't really get much feeling. So the only thing I really get access to, from a stimulatory point of view, um, well that wasn't the right word because the only the only feeling I get is stimulation, which comes from things like either drugs or work or success power um because i don't get so much of the other stuff you know because i'm very low on that emotional spectrum so i do find myself still kind of craving to fill that void because it's not full yet and i'm i'm a, I'm a work in progress i've put my hands up to that um doesn't mean does haven't come a long way and i can't help a lot of people but i i still have um, internal dissatisfaction in some areas of my life to the point where I, I, I would, I would love to pick up a drink, and I know that would temporarily make me feel a bit better. And I was sober for five years, clean and sober, didn't touch the thing. I did have a couple of relapses. You know, this is a typical. Oh, I wonder if I can have a few now, which turned into a few, a few times before it became a few more than a few. And um, and then also I, I, I started having a lot of epileptic seizures for some reason. I think it was from working too hard because I became a workaholic 14 hours a day seven days a week wouldn't stop um just this drive to either prove my dad wrong or to, just my obsessive nature to, to to fill that void again uh, and then I was prescribed um these tablets which were which I became addicted to I would say uh, prescription meds so I'm still on a I'm still on the hunt for that solution of that moment where I'm going to be like I'm complete in myself. And I know it's from, I know I need to love myself. I know that's where, if I can truly yes. accept everything, love myself, accept myself, and get to the point where I no longer need to fill a void because it's all within me, uh, then I won't need anything else. But that is difficult and that's easier said than done. And that's a journey. And I am slowly filling it. And sometimes I fill it and sometimes I lose it again. And, you know, I've gone into the jungle and done plant medicine. You know, I've done breath work and shamanic ceremonies and tantra. And I've lived in Bali for three years. I've tried all sorts. And I'm on a quest to fill that void. Um, but I'd be lying to you if I sat there and said, I'm completely full and I've never touched a drink in my life because I don't need it anymore because I am Mr. Perfect. Because I can tell you what, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I love the self-awareness. So you, it sounds like you've had some experience with plant medicine. Yeah, a little bit. Not, not not a huge amount, but yeah, I've tried a few things. So you're, and you're not a huge fan? Uh, it was difficult for me because uh, in, in AA, they tell you if you touch drugs, there's three options, gels, institutions, and death. And they planted <laughs> that as a, as, a, as a limiting belief, but actually an empowering one as well. Um, to the yes. point where I was sitting in this circle thinking, am I in a drug session right now? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's all right. Yeah. Uh, so I had to battle with that. Um, but I did I did some mushrooms, I did some peyote, cactus, um, yep. and, and I think those didn't two I did. Might be one more. Oh yeah, cacao, but that's just pretty much chocolate. So yep. that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. so I've tried and, and mushrooms I did really actually emotion uh, mushrooms in a you know in a ceremonial environment, not a party environment. Um did really allow me to access things that I've never accessed before, which was brilliant because it showed me, oh, I have the capacity to feel that. Yes, I, I've never felt that before. And feeling things and seeing things that I'd never opened myself up to show, showed me that it was possible. So 
I need to get back to Bali. What am I doing in Canary Wharf in London? Look at this. this is, <laughs> I need to board shorts back on and the vest and, and get on my scooter and just go straight into the jungle and start getting on my personal development journey again. <laughs> the awareness is awesome. Uh, yeah, it, plant medicine, I think for a lot of people, um, is exactly what you described. It, it allows them to see what could be and allows them to see that they do have that capacity. So, and, and a few different times in our discussion, you've described yourself as having a low emotional, low on the the emotional intelligence spectrum. Is that something that you believe you can increase? And and if so, what things can you do to increase your, your emotional spectrum? This is a tough one. I don't know if you know this, there's only very recent news. Um, on Friday, I had a, a premiere um, for a documentary that's coming out on Netflix about me. Um, this Wednesday, there is a documentary. This, Congratulations. This, it is a plug, but it's relevant. But I love it, yeah. There's a documentary coming out about me. It's actually only available in the UK and Ireland, unfortunately, but it, it will be global soon, but they're rolling out in the UK first. But you can put the VPN on if you really want to watch it, guys. Um, <laughs> so you can find it on Netflix. What's the name of it? It's called The Psychopath Life Coach. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a, what a hook for a name. Exactly. Because so, I was diagnosed with a psychopath as a young man and also now still check, hit the checklist as a psychopath now. I don't know if I am because I don't, how can I compare myself to anybody else because I'm only me? You know, I don't know how you feel. And I, no matter how much you tell me, I don't know how you feel. You can logically explain it, but, but I, I, I will never know. And I can, I can fit someone's label. Does that mean I'm a psychopath? I don't know. Um, if I am truly a psychopath, by the way, I scored 30 out of 40. Which and, and you have to score 30 to be a psychopath. So I'm right on the cusp. <laughs> if I was one point less, I wouldn't have been one. So um, I have emotions, but they're just very weak, I would say. And and it's not just, it's just everything is just weak. So fear is weak. Um, fulfillment is weak. Um, you know, happiness is even weak. Just, it just, just most emotions are just weak. That's all I can really describe it as, but they're still there. Um, it's not like I just, everything's flat, but I do have days where I do have flatness. Um, but, um, if I truly am a psychopath, then it is incurable. I definitely have the personality disorder, which is also incurable. If I am a sociopath who has been traumatized and not learned to develop his emotions and has been accidentally labeled as a psychopath, which is what I'm hoping for then of course you have the ability to uh, develop these emotions. Um, what makes you think any of it's incurable? You described both those things as incurable. What makes you believe that they're incurable? Well, I guess it's just what the doctors say, which I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not personally listening to the doctors, but yeah, it, you know, they do say that there's no intervention other than, you know, talking therapy and there's no, there's no pills or there's no, there's no like full cure. You essentially have to learn to live with it. So you understand yourself. So I guess, in terms of curing it, you would do what I've done. You know, you work on yourself, you, you generate a level of awareness and you harness those traits because something we haven't spoken about is psychopathy. You know, everyone stigmatizes it with serial killers. That's, you know, that's a very small proportion of people on the psychopathic spectrum that have the ability to do that, but it doesn't mean this to do with their psychopathy. They just have less empathy, and um, and, a, and a more and an easier ability to be violent. Therefore, they make a good serial killer. Doesn't mean to say that you can. I mean, most leaders of society um, and most CEOs 
um, you know, if you if they admitted to it, you'd probably find out they were they were psychopaths as well because you can't take people to war and you can't make certain decisions and it's snacking you know, like that unless you unless you have some of these traits. But for our for, sorry to interrupt you, but for our listeners, because we're using this word a lot, can you define what a psychopath is? Because I think this is super fascinating. This was when I studied; I did all my coursework in psychology, and I began to realize that a lot of this is a highly subjective subject. Right. And it really has to come from the perception of the people. It's it's you separate from what normal society is. Right. Which I think is super fascinating for a number of reasons. But can you describe for our listeners what a psychopath, what it means to be a psychopath? Yeah, I can only, I can only describe it from my perspective, because obviously I'm not a you know psychologist or a psychiatrist. But uh, well, I see it as a spectrum of emotion and you can be an empath. And that's someone that's riddled by other people's emotions. They're consumed. They're clouded. They can't even hear a story without being anxiety and stress and crying. You know, that's one end. You know, then you're sort of moving into the middle end when you're yeah, affected by your own things, which I still feel is, is a hindrance, to be honest, because, you know, I'm a coach, I'm a trainer, and I see that 99.9% of people's problems are things that they put in their own way. You know, we know it's fear, it's doubt, it's imposter syndrome. So it's all these things that aren't helpful at all. And yeah. they know exactly what they need to do, but they don't do what they know. And if they were just to get those things out of the way, they would just take one step in front of another, one step in front of another, and they would realize they'd be very successful very quickly. Success isn't actually always that complicated, um, but they make it complicated because of all this stuff that's in their body that's firing around. Anyway, so a psychopath would be someone with no emotion at all. And that's someone that could literally just kill a baby and just not have any effect whatsoever. That's, that's someone 40 out of 40. And then you have this spectrum that ranges, you know, and I believe that I am on that range somewhere, whether it's nature or nurture, I've somehow ended up on that. And it just means that I feel less, but as a result, I'm able to think more. I think, you know, if you're, if you're blind, then you can hear better. If you, if you, if you can't hear, then you're going to be able to see better. And I'm more strategic. You know, I, I can see things. I'm logical. I see steps. I can map out things in front of me when they're not even there. Um, but, you know. So is it, it's interesting because, and, and tell me if you've shared this experience, but in a lot of my coaching, we spend a lot of time helping people begin to understand emotion, get their emotions under control, and direct them in useful ways. Because more often than not, it's the, the lack of emotional control or lack of emotional awareness that is keeping people stuck. And what I'm hearing you say is, I don't really struggle with that too much because I don't, I'm not emotionally compromised. I don't, my emotions don't filter a lot of my decisions. And that's, that's yeah, a documentary called the psychopath life coach. And I, right. you know, a lot of people would not dare do that because they're thinking, oh, what are people going to say about me? What is it? But it just doesn't bother me, you know, because I see the, 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 the media benefit of it, you know, so my brain just thinks only logical and only are and it's not influenced by anything else. Um, Which is available in the UK right now. It will be, eventually be worldwide, but it's available in the UK for those who are listening from the UK. I think just to go back to what you said there, I think the key isn't necessarily to remove these emotions because we can't, we can't all be psychopaths, right? Um, it's about uh, <laughs> understanding and reacting to them. Um, sorry, responding to them rather than reacting to them. I used to react to my emotions. And, you know, if someone triggered me, I wouldn't even know what happened. I would fight, you know, and this isn't the conscious decision. This was a subconscious action. 
And it's because I didn't understand what was going on for me. I didn't realize that I was feeling belittled by my dad or I was feeling insignificant or weak or powerless. So I needed to overcompensate to make myself feel loved and appreciated and needed. And, you know, there's all these you know, crazy things happening for us. But once you educate yourself and understand why you're behaving the way you're behaving, you get, to, you get choice. You get, you get choice to respond to the way that you feel. And you can still feel the same range of emotion. You may even still get triggered, but someone might, you know, belittle me one day, and I might say, "You just, I, in my head." That this reminds me of how my dad used to make me feel. Like that would usually really annoy me, but I know that's my shit, you know, and, and I know that's not his problem. This, this is my shit. And actually, when you do that, it takes the power away from it because you go, "Oh, this isn't a problem." It's just something that happened way before, which is it, doesn't exist it's, anymore. It's no longer unconscious. It's it's a conscious experience that allows you to consciously choose how you're going to respond to it. So you don't have to change the emotion. You change the way you see the emotion. You change the response to it. And yeah. that's equally as, as, as powerful to the outcome, which is what we all care about, the outcome. Yes. This is brilliant because for a lot of, uh, especially, I think I experienced this more with, the men that I coach than the women I coach, but um, very often instead of recognizing our emotions, we'll bury them, right? Instead of like, hey, I'm experiencing this. Instead of acknowledging I'm experiencing this, it's I deny that I'm experiencing this, which creates a whole other host of problems and we begin to bury emotion and then it comes out in very inopportune ways and very inopportune times because we're not processing dealing with your emotion. And I love the well said. That also creates shame as well. And it's an unconscious shame as well because yeah. they're bringing the same. Why are they burying it? Because they're ashamed of it. And if you're yeah. telling me that one below death, then they've got this subconscious desire for death, which doesn't sound good to me. Yeah, that's exactly it. If you stay there long enough, and I'm borrowing from Hawkins' work. I don't know if you've studied Dr. David Hawkins. He wrote Power Versus Force, uh, probably his seminal work. But and he, he came up with an arbitrary scale for consciousness, transcending levels of consciousness. And and shame is literally the lowest before death. And it's, it's, a, it's a framework I use when I'm coaching people because if you can begin to understand what emotion they're consistently living in, you can understand where they're at and how to help them um, level up or go up the ladder versus down the ladder. So it's, I, it's a great framework, I think. Uh, so, so you do this Netflix series, which is, I'm excited. I can't wait for it to come to the United States. I look forward to checking it out. Um, but you started helping people for free. And I want to come back to this because I, I don't want I don't want to discourage somebody who's 19 years old or 21 years old that wants to become a life coach or is selling life coaching courses on on social media but I I always it's I'm hesitant because like what what have you gone through that makes you qualified to be an effective coach now one could share information right you could you could educate yourself to understand particular frameworks but it, I think the best coaches are living what they're teaching. They've done it for themselves. And that was what was super interesting about you. And I'm listening to this. It's like everything you went through, your breaking point, right, really was your making point. It was all of those things you went through that allowed you to integrate truth in a way that became experientially true, not hypothetically true, and allows you to now teach with a high level of conviction because it's not something that you read in a book. It's something you went through. And so then you started getting excited, and I'm putting words in your mouth, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you're getting excited about what you're learning, you're seeing the change in your life, and that now is compelling you to want to help other people and go, there are answers out there. 
You don't have to be stuck. You can change. You don't have to be this way. And so you start doing it for free, but now fill us in. So this is now professionally what you're doing. Tell me how that went. I just want to talk about what you mentioned there quickly. I mean, Rich, Rich Lippin, I don't know if you've, you've read his work. Um, he says you can only take someone to the depths that you've been yourself. And I, and I, do, I do believe that um, to a certain extent. Uh, but I also believe there are some very powerful coaches that have learned very powerful tools, techniques, models, and frameworks from some of the best coaches that have ever lived. And you, you don't necessarily need the experience because, you know, you all know the difference between a coach and a mentor. A mentor is someone that will guide someone through their own experience and a coach is a facilitator of change. You know, they don't necessarily have to have the added advantage of understanding it for themselves. And no coach has the understanding of every life experience anyway. You know, a client could come to me and she, she's a 60-year-old woman who's got empty nest syndrome. And I'm thinking, what the fuck? I can't. I haven't got a clue. Doesn't mean to say I can't coach you on it, you know, because I know the models. So right. Say I would discourage anyone that doesn't have life experience. And also we all have life experience in one way or another. We've all been through something that we can leverage and we can learn from to help somebody. And that's why I think it's important to niche down, you know, know what your challenges are and help people in that area. But yeah, I started to help. Just as a, to, to kind of frame that to me, it's not so much about your life experiences and cause I agree with you. I think, Great coaches don't, like, you could be a, a, a great coach to someone who's an engineer and not have a background in engineer engineering or an architect or, or, or yeah, 100%, well, 100%. But what, in my opinion, you do need to have is experiential or integrated understanding of the frameworks that you're using. In other words, what you're teaching, you experientially know to be a true and effective, not a hypothetical framework. And which is different, that's a difference than like lots of life experience. It's just knowing the frameworks or the principles or the organizing principles you're using or first principle thinking that you're using works. And you know it works because it's an integrated part of your own life. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, yeah, that, you know, if a coach, if a coach is 18 years old and they're, you know, they're like, I'm going to move to Dubai and put you know, life coach in their bio, you're an idiot. But if you're, you know, a couple of years old and you've been through some things and you've gone off and you've educated yourself to the point where you are actually now competent to help other people and you've learned these tools and techniques and frameworks and you've niched down in an area which you are confident in, I do believe that people have the opportunity to get started there and help people because a lot of people need help, you know, and so even if it's the first step, you know, because most people that come for coaching they're struggling and they're, they're not looking to be a multi-millionaire and they don't need all the answers. They need, you know, that first step that somebody else has got, no matter how old they are, how much experience they've got, they may have that first step. So I, I, I do empower people to, to, to not, not think they have to wait until they get gray hair or wait until they have their degree. Um, do your best you can to help somebody and grow from there. Cause that's all I did. You know, the first person I helped was a guy that came into an AA meeting and asked me for some help. And I actually said, why the fuck are you asking me for? I, I'm just like you. I'm a drug addict as well. <laughs> I can't help you. And then I thought, okay, I've been here two weeks. It's just first meeting. You can get a cup of tea over there. There's some leaflets on the table over there. And halfway through, <laughs> you can have a bag break, a cigarette break. And then, I thought, and then I thought, okay, yeah, I've helped this guy. And then I realized I don't need to be completely put together in order to help someone. And what I always say is I say, become your first client. You know, if you want to be a coach, become your first client. Go out there and become the best version you can. 
Uh, and if, if that is even through coach training, brilliant, because you'll be learning loads of models that eventually you'll be able to share with other people, but at least you'll be able to apply them to yourself first and you'll go through a journey. Like I'm not to, not to plug what we do, but we have a coach training program. This is the main thing that we do. And people start that wanting to become a coach and they come out the other end going, bloody hell, that changed my life. That's not what I was here. 100%. I was here to yeah. make some money as a life coach and to build this business and to learn these things to use. But actually, I had to do all this stuff on myself and I didn't realize that it was going to be like that. And you do become your first client. So, yeah, I'm, I'm on the fence about, you know, that we don't want those bullshitters from Dubai that are 18 years old, but we also want to empower people to get started and go out and help people because I was once that person. I was once 100%. that person who could have said, he is not fit to be a life coach. You know, and now, you know, I'm a good one. So, and, and, uh, I'm, not to. Not to correct you, but you said the first person you helped was a guy, and I would offer the first person you helped was yourself, right? That was the, the first person we have to learn how to lead and coach as ourselves. And, and to me, that's it. It's, and I don't think you have to be perfect. No one's perfect. But I, I, anytime somebody calls themselves an expert or a master, or I'm always like, ah, you're asymptotically approaching perfection, right? We're always working towards it. And I agree with you. You don't have to have everything figured out in your life to be able to help someone else. And sometimes it's just having your heart oriented towards helping others. But I would offer, it is important to, to integrate the truths you're teaching so that they emanate from you in a way that are energetic. They are they're literally part of who you are. I'll be honest, the reason why we built a $25 million business is it was by accident, really. But we, we created a course. It was a Zoom recording. Me and my business partner, my business partner had been in the London terror attacks. He lost his dad to suicide. He'd been through all this trauma as well. And we thought, we know how to help people. So we're just going to lay out how to fix these issues. And we're also going to pepper in the traditional tools and techniques that you know have been around for decades as well. And we delivered this course and we 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 put our heart and soul into it. Like we cried in it, we 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 swore in it, we was completely unpolished. You know, at one point my business partner gets up and picks up an Amazon package from the front door. It wasn't supposed to be this glamorous course that was going to change the world. This was let's share this because this fucking works. And um we just launched it on a Facebook Live and made 17 grand on the first time, and then the second time we made hundred grand. And then before we knew it, you know, we're making millions of dollars per year. And then we, we obviously created like an NLP course and a few others. And they're the same Zoom recordings. Like we, we, our, our flagship course is the same Zoom recording that we created five years ago where I look much younger, but the energy and the passion is still there. And it just came from a pure desire to share my journey and what I knew for a fact worked. Because it doesn't matter what books you read, I know what works because it worked for me, you know. So I couldn't, I completely agree. So where does... So where, sh where would somebody start? Somebody's listening to this conversation. They're like, that's me. I need help. Where can they start? What, what would you tell them to do? And, and, and I don't, you absolutely don't mind uh, you recommending your course or, or talking about what you do. But for somebody who is, what's the frame that, what was the big shift for you? I mean, you talked about you just decided I'm going to change. But from a, from a first principle thinking or from a framework that you use in your coaching business, where does somebody start? Where's something that, what's something we could tell people today that they could apply to their life after listening to this and immediately figure out whether or not it works? Draw a line in the sand and make a firm decision that your life will never be the same. I think people make changes in too, too much of a small way. They, 
oh, I'm going to start the gym on Monday. I'm going to, it needs to be immersive. And it needs to be a commitment. And there needs to be some sort of um, significance attached to that decision. For me, I happened to be in prison. It was this sort of awakening that allowed me to have this pivotal moment where I could always look back on it and go, when I was in that prison cell and I looked in that mirror, you know, I can always remember that moment. I'm never going to go back from it because it's, it was such a turning point for me. So I, I would advise people to try and replicate that moment. And it's going to be different for, every, for everybody. And you'd really have to put a bit of thought into thinking, how can I create that moment? You know, it might be, you know, throwing your wedding ring away. You know, it depends on what change you want to make. It might be, you know, quit closing down the business that you've been running for 20 years. It, it You know, it might be burning your, burning your old DJ records. Who knows what it is, right? <laughs> yeah. But... There needs to be a decision where you draw a line in the sand and you say, from this moment on, my life is never going to be the same. And if you can truly, truly make that decision, everything else will fall into place. But I don't think people make that decision powerfully enough. Do you find that for most of the clients that you work with, there are consistent conditions that lead to that decision? Meaning, for instance, enough pain or enough uh, turmoil or do you find that it's kind of all over the place? I think usually at your advantage if you're in pain because there's nowhere up from there and it's usually when people want to make those changes. Um, but there are ways to evoke um, the same response even if you're not in pain and you could be at a good level and you can you know, highlight and enhance all the things you want from life and, and the way that you would feel if you weren't to get those things. And th that pain can be aggravated in the mind to the point where you can hit a rock bottom even if you're not there. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question correctly or, or exactly what it was, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I, cause I love this. It's, you draw a line in the sand and you decide right from a tactical, logical standpoint, a rational standpoint, that makes sense. You decide my life is never going to be the same. What I'm asking is, do you find that there is consistent conditions that lead to somebody finally making that decision? Because it's one thing to say it, and we, we, I think we all probably know lots of people that's right. So, how do you, where do you find that power? I guess is in, in the framework you're using. Where do you find the power to make that change? Do you find that there is a consistent pattern to how people find that pattern? Um, but and if not, how would somebody find it right now that's listening? have the awareness that you just need to understand that this is a fucking life-changing decision this isn't something that i'm just going to try out this isn't something i'm going to give a go this isn't a, a couple of chapters of a book i'm going to read this isn't a, a business that i'm going to see if it works out and if it works out i might you know start going part-time hours whatever it is it needs you need to put you need to, it needs to be certain we need certainty but this is going to be a life-changing moment and i guess it comes down to belief as well you know it's tapping into belief believe that that change can happen commit to that change do not give yourself the opportunity to go back um you know there's lots to it but i think it's just more a, a case of understanding that it it just needs to be a sincere hardcore commitment and if it's not then you're just going to go back to what you know and you're going to go back to that comfort zone as cliche as that sounds because the comfort zone is comfy right so unless you're you know, anticipating that, you know, I'm probably going to want to go back to that comfort zone. And what's ahead of me is going to be difficult. So this is a decision that I'm making now, which is a big one. 
you know and if you can truly truly understand that what i'm make the decision i'm making now is going to be tough but it's going to be life-changing but i'm absolutely committed to it and and there doesn't need to be anything else other than the level of awareness that it is a choice that you can make but i just don't think people make that choice i simply think they skate around making minuscule changes hoping that that's enough to give them a bit of momentum to try the next step i don't think it works like that i think there needs to be an absolute decision right even if it does come from a big decision and then there are incremental steps after that commitment needs to be there right from the very start when i looked at myself in the mirror i was like i am never going to be the same again and that's how i know that from that and i felt it and it was powerful and i tried to make changes before like to, to my life and things around me but everything always ended up back at square one again it was only when i realized that now i need to take this seriously I need to move away from my friends and family. I need to go to rehab. I need to stop taking drinking drugs. I need to educate myself. This is a serious fucking thing. And the moment I realized that, things spiraled into control and everything started being great. And now I'm a world traveling entrepreneur, making money, married, got a kid and I'm not in prison. So that commitment worked. And I'm not saying that's the, the whole journey, but you asked me the very first one. I love it, I yeah. That commitment, without that commitment, I don't think anything else would work. Because you can have the best coach in the world, but if they're not committed and they don't want it, you can take a horse to water, but they can't make it drink, you know? So that, that horse needs to be ready to drink. And the only person that's going to decide who wants to drink is the horse. My, my dad used to use that phrase all the time, and then he would correct himself and say, but you can salt the oats as a, as a way of inducing a, a horse to want to drink. But uh, you can salt the oats. <laughs> I love this. So it, to me, the most powerful thing about your story is your result, right? It, and, and just fundamentally, one of the, the, the organizing principles I use and I teach from is get advice from people who are where you want to be, meaning their life demonstrates the truth that they know. And, and you went from being in prison, being a drug addict to, to being able to, to redirect your addictive behavior into things that were more effective to get get clean from alcohol and drugs to, to get to being married, to having a healthy relationship, to being able to travel over the world, to running a $25 million business. That's incredible. And, and so that to me is the proof is in the pudding. 8,000 8, people from 85 countries around the world. And they have then helped other people uh, because they're coaches. So I've qualified 8,000 coaches and they That's have incredible. thousands of coaches. And then, the, their lives will be better, which will have an impact on their family. It'll be less toxic, more positive, etc. So the ripple effect is millions. So that's that's my biggest issue. Isn't that incredible? And that to me, that the proof's in the pudding. And so new new Netflix series out as well, uh, or a documentary. Uh, and and I'm curious to see what that's well, like. Win Random House, which is uh, in the UK, actually I think worldwide number one book publisher. So that will be coming out. Um, so you can hear more about that. What What's the name of the book? Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed. I've never actually released it. Um, so not sure if I'm allowed. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Don't worry about it. You, what was your working title? Did you have uh, a working title? The working title, which isn't the name of the book, was Turning Adversity into an Asset. And that's the name. And my podcast is called Adversities to Assets because that's what I really believe in. I'm, I'm grateful for everything that's ever happened to me. Love yeah. it. It's taught me everything about myself. And if I hadn't gone through those things, then I wouldn't have become the person I am today. And I, and, and that's what I live by. So yeah, adversity is into assets. 
gen for me to know that the work is generally done in somebody's life in a particular area is that their adversity they now look back at with gratitude right that they're thankful for the things that they went through instead of blaming the things they went through so that's brilliant few rapid fire questions and i'll let you go what book would you recommend or what book do you recommend more than any other somebody wanted to go get a book right now to change their life you mentioned 12 steps a lot of people have helped uh, have gotten a lot from the 12-step program but what book in your life do you find that you've recommended more than any other? The Power of Your, the power of your Subconscious Mind. Have you read that book? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. That one just opened my mind to The Power of Your Subconscious Mind. It's pretty self-explanatory. But when you start to realize the actual science back part of it, because I think there's a lot of people that still have this misconception that mindset and personal development is still a bit woo-woo and it's a bit, you know, spiritual. When, but when you realize it is just a scientific factual part of your brain um that can have tremendous impact on your external world or internal world and even your physiology um i think it opens up your mind in, 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 a, in a crazy way so that that's one i would really recommend beautiful if you could have a, a billboard we'll say downtown london what would you put on it turn adversity into an asset uh Although people probably won't understand what that meant, which is why my book publisher wouldn't let me use it as a title. <laughs> but um, what else would I put on there? Everything I'm thinking of is pretty cliche and cheesy, but that's probably because I'm in the personal development world and it all becomes cliche after a while. But um, past doesn't define you or you can create your identity. Something along those lines, you know, you are not fixed. You know, you can be whoever you want. And there is nobody or nothing stopping you other than yourself. It's quite a lot for a billboard, but hopefully they get the message. I love it. That some of the biggest truths are they do get cliche. They can sound cliche. And last one. What are your goals for 2024? What are you looking forward to? You're you're a new dad. Um, what and you're about to release a book. Very exciting things. What does 2024 look like for you? Yeah, yeah. Book dad. Uh, working on moving to Miami. Criminal record thing makes it a bit difficult, but working on it. Um, and I actually have a passion for um, film, uh, so I'd like to be in. Um, there's a TV series that I'm potentially going to be in. I'd like to be an actor, so I'm dabbling with a bit of that. Oh, very cool. I think, but um, that's something that is, is on the radar for the next year. Awesome. Exciting. Well, I look forward to having you in Miami. Next time I'm out there, I'll, I'll see if we can uh, connect. But Lewis, it was fantastic having you on. I really appreciate your time today and sharing your story. And hopefully we can do this again soon. 100%. Thank you so much. It's been a great chat. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Lewis Raymond Taylor. Thank you, guys.